1: All right, all right. Welcome, disability law show. Strap in. Good to have you here again. Tamara Gopian is your go-to person for all the knowledge and the questions, and of course, the answers. Anytime you want to reach out to Tamara when we're not doing this lovely show, partner Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP, you can reach uh, Tamara at help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And for other questions you want to ask outside of a phone call, mydisabilityquestions.com. So we'll get rolling in here uh, emails questions already piling in which we will get to in short order tomorrow but you always start off with uh, something to set the table a week that was a case of the day so to speak what's uh, what's happening on your end
2: so to speak thank you john mm. uh, great opening great week always busy always lots of things on the go and i want to start with an oldie but a goodie uh, and that is the focus on making an ltd application okay and so let me give you some context to the situation there are a lot of individuals who contact us when they're having trouble even with their short-term disability claim job and that's Mm -hmm. really the starting point so you become unwell unfortunately that may go for a week a day seven days different policies have different requirements on that initial phase either way your doctors are saying you can't work you need to stop working you advise your employer and many of them will say okay look we've got disability benefits that are accessible to you, here's the package, make an application, away you go. But what's happening, and I think many people don't realize this, is a lot of insurers will, disability insurers that is, will adjudicate or administer the short-term disability claim on behalf of the employer. And only when it gets to LTD, the long-term disability benefits, do they then become the pay your of the benefits. Let me explain this in a different way, John. If you are approved for short-term disability, not in all circumstances, but many of them that I've been seeing this week have to do with the insurance company saying, yep, you you meet the test, you're not able to work, and they will let the employer know, and the employer cuts the check. And they cut the check, and it can be similar to long-term in the sense that it may not be 100% of your salary, it can be 70%. There's varying degrees, or it could be a grid. Sometimes it's 100% for a number of weeks, and then it gets reduced for a further set of weeks. Long story short, John, it's expected that you're going to go from short-term to Mm -hmm. long-term. But guess what? Most insurance companies then become the gatekeepers of their own money. So now they're adjudicating short-term and they have a financial interest to decline your claim in the short-term phase before you even get to long-term. Because if you do transition to long-term, and most people expect that it will just be a seamless transition, you are going to continue getting disability benefits, but it's now going to be paid by the insurance company. And so people come to us and say, look, tomorrow, what are my options here? And there's a couple of technical pieces here. And one of the things I want to focus on is making that LTD application. What people have been told is that I had two consults this week, John, this is why I'm talking about this at the top of the show, (laughs) where they said, well, the insurance company told me that I don't need to apply for long-term because I don't qualify. And I say to them, well, no, hang on. It could be that they're denying on the basis of a medical reason, but they can't deny on the basis of a technical reason, which is, well, you didn't get the maximum short-term period, and that's why you're not entitled to long-term. So there were two consults this week who were like, well, I didn't apply for long-term because I was told by the insurance company that I wasn't covered or I wasn't entitled to it. That is absolutely a myth. Think about that. If you don't make the application or at least tell the insurance company, I'm intending to pursue long-term, by the way, insurance company, because I'm still sick, I still can't work, my doctors are supporting, I cannot work. Well, then you don't have their feet to the fire to actually give you a response in writing telling you whether or not you actually qualify for the LTD benefit. And there's been a lot of cases around this actually. A lot of, there's one insurer in particular who loves to make this argument, even in the context of a legal claim to say, well, your claimant never applied for long-term disability, so you can't sue us for LTD because they never made that application. So the takeaway here is, please do make that application. What it does is does two things. It serves two primary roles or goals. Number one, it secures your legal right to the disability benefit. It takes away the argument the insurance company can make that says you didn't apply so you're not entitled and you know these kinds of technical things that they love to throw at claimants who generally don't know the difference, frankly. And two, more importantly, It creates further medical support at that time, filled out forms by yourself and your doctors, confirming that you're still disabled, still not able to work, still meet the test of disability, and still qualify for benefits. And so when people come to me with these problems and they say, okay, look, I didn't get the full short-term disability period. Now my employer's saying I've got to go back to work. I don't know what to do here. Yes, it can be very stressful, but I'm trying to give people that context that you should be following medical advice. Your doctors are saying you cannot work. Do not hesitate to continue to pursue that disability benefit. Even if the insurer is saying to you, you don't qualify. Because the words are really, really important here, John. And sometimes people don't understand exactly what the insurance company is saying. And the bottom line is, if you walk away from it, guess what? The insurance company doesn't have to pay you a dime, right? And that's really what they're trying to achieve here. They adjudicate the short term. They may give you some trouble near the end of that short-term period because they don't really want you to transition to long-term, and if you never make that transition and end up feeling forced to get back to work, then they don't have to pay the benefit of their own pocket at all. And they still get compensation from your employer for adjudicating your short-term claim, and they've made their money there and they haven't had to dispense a single dollar for the long-term disability benefit. So I thought it was an important one to start off the show just talking about these technical issues around making that LTD application.
1: And where do you go when the uh, insurance company eventually, which they will say, well, we're sending you to our people. You're going to have an assessment with our people. So that's going to be the gospel when this is all over that we, they will generally follow. Hopefully it's in their favor, right? That's kind of why they're paying for it. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. So, look, I mean, we're seeing a little bit more of that step being taken, John, that they will send you for an assessment or, you know, suggest that you go to one of their treatment providers and, you know, that's the route you should take. And most people are like, okay, this must mean then my benefits are going to continue, so I should cooperate. And generally, yes, as a claimant for disability, you do have a duty to cooperate, but I just don't want individuals to do things somewhat blindly. And I feel like there's a little bit of, well, the insurance company is saying, so I must. And that's not always the case. Certainly the policies say that if the insurer believes that you can benefit from rehabilitation or some kind of specific treatment, and they suggest to you that you should get that treatment, yes, you need to cooperate to continue getting that treatment. But ideally, you would be getting treatments and assessments from your own treatment providers, someone your own doctor or health practitioner has suggested. Your own doctor, him or herself is absolutely more favorable because guess who's paying their bill? OHIP. It's not the insurance company who's paying for the physiotherapist or the occupational therapist or psychologist or whoever it is that they've set you up with. And that creates an inherent bias, right? I mean, you know yes they have their oaths to you know provide people with care and you know do things in, in a very appropriate manner in accordance with their professions and their duties but at the end of the day if the bill is being paid by the insurance company and there's even any sort of gray which way do you think they're going to favor right is it going to be in favor of the clients or is it going to be in favor of the insurance company and this yeah. is why I'm always hesitant to have people say oh well the insurance company said so I must This is why we do these consultations and these shows, John. We're trying to get so much information out there for people to know that, look, you've got rights and you do have opportunities to dialogue with your adjuster and your insurance company to say, look, work with me. I feel much more comfortable with this psychologist or counselor that I've been seeing for the last three months. I absolutely understand that perhaps I need specific treatment that you guys think I need to get, but can we work with my treatment provider to do that? My doctor's recommending it, so let's continue with that treatment as opposed to uprooting all the progress you've made with one therapist and starting fresh with someone entirely new. So you can see the logic there. There's a lot of, um, you know, reason why that would be more beneficial for the claimant uh, as opposed to, look, we're going to uproot this, we're going to have you assessed by one of our own people, and we're going to make our determinations around you know whether you can or cannot work based on what this one treatment provider is saying. Not great. <laughs>
1: Well, it's always like, you know, the boss man, Savan Tamarkin always says, David Goliath's story, but you know who won that battle, right? And that's that's the way it is. That's why you want to reach out to you and and the rest of the team tomorrow. That, by the way, is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. I want to get into a, our first email. We probably won't have time to answer the entire thing with the remaining time before we take a, a first break here, but I want to get into it. This one came from Bob. Uh, Again, help at disabilityrights.ca says, hey, tomorrow I was being harassed and bullied at work. Eventually it broke me down and I developed severe depression and anxiety, which is ongoing and requires active treatment. My doctor has supported me the whole time. It took nearly a year, but after an investigation, I finally got accepted for workers' compensation benefits. Right after I got the WCB acceptance, my LTD benefits were declined. I felt like the insurer was just waiting for WCB to decide before saying no. They gave the excuse that because my claim was for workplace issues and did not prevent me from working at my own occupation, I wasn't covered. They also said something about uh, own job versus own occupation, and that I only had 24 months of LTD benefits. Should I be pursuing a legal claim for LTD benefits? Wow,
2: Great questions, Bob. Totally. Great questions. So look, let's first unpack this, this one comment that he's been told that he's only got 24 months of LTD benefits. Can we just debunk that right from the start? <laughs> This is really frustrating to me, John, because again, as I said at the top of the show, people blindly assume that what the insurance company is saying to them is correct. And I think that the words are important here. They may be saying to Bob, you've got 24 months of benefits for your own occupation, for being disabled from your own occupation. But most, the majority of disability policies actually cover you up until you turn 65 years old. So yes, the first two years are usually an analysis around whether or not Bob can actually go back to the job he was doing at the time that he became unwell and not able to continue working. But after those payments have made, it then transitions to a different test, a tougher one arguably, but certainly one that allows you further access to benefits if you're disabled, remain unable to work from any occupation. So look, let's pick this up with Bob's uh, balance of Bob's email after our break. But I thought I wanted to just debunk that right from the start. Josh.
1: You got it. Great opening, uh, opening salvo there. We'll continue tomorrow answering your questions anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Reaching out after the show. Simple. Do not hesitate. Cost you nothing to pick up a phone and have a chat. one 821 We'll continue after that short break. Disability Law Show continues. Stand by.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, welcome back. Thanks for hanging on through a a short break.
1: John Scholes here, Tamara Gobian, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. Representing and uh, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. How about that one? You want to reach out to tomorrow and a very capable team. Always there for a chat. Always there for support. It's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at. DisabilityRights.ca. There's also a free and anonymous website that is searchable. It's a cool database. It's a it's a really cool algorithm called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. You can use that anytime uh, you would like. Back to Bob's email again. Uh, Tamar bullied at work. Eventually broke him down. Got WCB workplace compensation LTD said, "Oh, you got that, so you ain't getting this." And uh, they said, "Oh, by the way, 24 months of LTD benefits." Now, in case this guy's unless he's 63 years old. I don't know what's going on there. So so continue to fill in some of the holes there, Tamar.
2: Absolutely. And so now I want to really focus on this element of workers' compensation and how that works with long-term disability benefits. So the two are different. Anyone who's listening who thinks the two are the same, they are absolutely not. Long-term disability comes from typically a private plan, a disability plan, a policy that's usually set up between your employer and the insurance company workers' compensation is a whole different entity. They are self-regulating, it's a tribunal, uh, it's got its own legislation, it's, a, it's got its own players, and you know, lawyers don't really have standing necessarily in that context, at least not, not a disability lawyer per se. That's not to say that disability lawyers don't work in the workers' comp realm, but I just want to distinguish the two because people just assume it's one and the same. It's not. But of course, disability insurers are clever. They have drafted disability policies for decades now that favor them. They will charge out a premium and ensure that they get every credit imaginable that's available out in the world. And that includes these kinds of benefits. It includes workers' compensation benefits. So every disability policy that I see will say, we will pay you X, usually two-thirds of what you're making before you became unwell. But if you get these other sources of income, we get to deduct it. It's called offsets. And workers' compensation, much like CPP disability that we talk about week in and week out, is similar in that regard because if the disability is the same, it's the same issue for why you're not working. Whatever the workers' comp issue is, that's what you're claiming LTD for. Then the insurance company will say, okay, we get a credit for that. But here's what makes it even more challenging workers' compensation, typically, if they're giving you an income support, John, it's at a percentage that's usually higher than what LTD pays. So let's get into some math here. Usually LTD is at most two thirds of what you were making before you became unwell. Yep. Workers' compensation is 70% and above. So if you're getting 70% and above and the disability insurance, insurance company takes credit for it, it wipes out the need for LTD to be pay- being paid. That's basically what it is. So if you're getting workers' compensation and income support, not rehab, not the other things that workers' comp does, but actually an income support, usually then it means that LTD is not payable. However, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get some kind of determination from the LTD insurer that you're still meeting the test of total disability. And that is the issue that I see here with Bob, because what if his workers' comp benefits end? he can still be entitled to long-term. They are different tests. They're totally different entities, and they are both payors. So I don't like the fact that the insurance company waited for workers' comp to say, yep, you're approved, probably started paying a hefty uh, income support, and insurance company did the math and thought, you know what? We're just going to deny this because we don't have to pay anything anyway, even if we had approved Bob under our disability plan. And that does not sit well with me. Because as I said, if workers' comp stops paying, then what happens to LTD? You're still Bob is still entitled. And then what happens to LTD if Bob is gonna be, you know, totally disabled for the balance of his working life until retirement? So I do think that this could be a valuable basis upon which Bob wants to pursue benefits, but he needs to be mindful of the fact that it may not get him more compensation in his pocket in the short term, mm-hmm. so long as workers' compensation is still paying. But it's a critical right to long-term disability if workers' comp stops paying and he's still entitled to LTD. So I think that the insurance company is certainly being quite clever in what they've done here. And I think what's more frustrating is the fact that his Bob's doctors are clearly supportive of the mental health issues, clearly supportive of the fact that it prevents him from working. Now you've got a, a totally different entity confirming that. So Workers' Comp has also agreed that as a result of his workplace, he is unwell and not able to work. And yet in the context of that, he's not able to do his disability uh, or his he, he's not able to qualify for LTD. That doesn't make sense to me. But Bob gives us one other critical piece of information in his email. Mm-hmm. He says to us, John, that the LTD insurer has told him something about his own job versus his own occupation and that he's not prevented from working at his own occupation because all of the health issues he's having is workplace related. So this is an interesting one because it's really goes to the core of how disability insurers will analyze the first part of disability benefits, that first two years, what are they looking at? And the majority of the disability policies say it's your own occupation. So it's not actually tied to your workplace. It's not tied to situational issues that are happening in your workplace. And in fact, most disability insurers really don't want to get involved in a difficult workplace situation. They, they'll they say, this is not a proper disability claim. This is a work setting issue. You need to put yourself in a different work setting and you might be able to work. And I think that's the key question here is, if I said to Bob, look, I'm going to put you in a different work setting. Could you work? My suspicion is no, he couldn't. So I think the insurance company is, is doing their knee-jerk reaction thing, which is what they often do, which is to say, look, you know, this is all workplace related. It's not a true disability claim. We're going to deny, you know, he's getting workers comp anyway. So the chances are he's probably not going to pursue us further for benefits. Again, a whole host of assumptions that that really only gives Bob the short end of the stick. And that's where I'm getting frustrated with this analysis is that I don't think it's appropriate and most likely not done on a proper basis by the insurance company.
1: With that, Bob, he emailed, he can also reach out by phone as you can, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. 855 help at disabilityrights.ca. Let's go down that road a little more, bad faith against the insurance company. What do you think?
2: Yeah, you know, like, could it be that that even Bob's situation gives rise to a bad faith claim? It's possible. And so I would say on a high level, bad faith or a finding of bad faith from the courts really is a determination that the disability insurer did not meet their duty uh, to the claimant and did not work with the claimant in a transparent way, in a good faith way, in a way that was really true to what the policy is meant for, which... Everybody knows a disability policy is meant to be a peace of mind policy. It's supposed to give you that income support to allow you the time that you need to focus on your health and recover and give you some compensation in that time to allow you to do so. But it is a a high bar, John. So the courts have said, look, we're not going to award damages. We're not going to say to the insurance company that you've done something uh, really, really improper just because you declined a claim. There needs to be more evidence there. Something that is at a higher threshold, so that it is really a, a punitive component. Something that they did really badly. That should, be, you know, you should slap their wrist, basically, in saying that it's high-handed, it's malicious, it's done improperly. They should not have done it. And so that's really punitive damages. But could there be a situation here of aggravated or mental distress damages? And and I talk about this in in particular because. You know, we saw in Bob's circumstances, for example, it's a mental health disability. And so could he be in a situation very reasonably that the denial of the claim by the insurance company has aggravated or exacerbated what is already a compromised mental health state? And I could see that being very likely and the threshold from the courts to actually award those kinds of damages is lower than punitive, right? So you don't have to establish that the insurance company was so, so bad that we need to, you know, make a huge award by the courts. But if it aggravated or increased the symptoms, then yes, it could potentially lead to that threshold of being an extra element of damages, extra element of, of uh, compensation, and just for our listeners, this is amounts that the courts award over and above the benefit amount. So I'm not suggesting here that you know, it, it, that it would be Bob getting just his LTD benefit. Certainly that's front and center. That's what he's entitled to. He should absolutely be pursuing his legal rights for that. But over and above that, could there be a claim here where the insurance company didn't deal with him in good faith? I think what concerns me with bob's situation and which may attract damages is if they've used the wrong interpretation or the wrong analysis or definition of total disability to deny his claim if they've done so and they have the wrong underpinnings of that it could be potentially an an opening of the door to say okay well look his claim is not just for damages you didn't treat him in, in good faith you didn't have the right interpretation of your policy and therefore you should you know the court should be uh you know granting damages over and above just the benefit level against mm-hmm. the insurance company
1: so there you go bob you've got a, a full and complete answer for sure I want to move on to uh well we have gabriella up next again through email help at disabilityrights.ca is the way you reached out it says uh, i'm working with the insurance company's treatment provider for my disability who say that i am not ready to go back to work my two-year-old LTD mark will be coming up soon. I was thinking of changing my own treating doctor and read somewhere this may not look good to the insurance company. Can you please comment on this, tomorrow?
2: Thanks, Gabriella. Oh. Uh, so look, I think that the the short answer is, is that as long as you're continuing to get treatment, it generally shouldn't make a difference one way or another whether you change doctors. You know, it, it, I think that if... It's helpful to get the appropriate treatment with someone that you trust, uh, and you know, getting it from a treatment provider that's going to help you to get to that point where you're returning back to work. By all means, you should certainly seek out whatever treatment you think is best for you. You know, could it raise eyebrows with the insurance company? Possibly. I think the concern is that there's some doctor shopping going on, right? So that you know, maybe a claimant's being strategic perhaps they weren't uh, getting enough support to be off work by one doctor so they're going to just switch doctors and find someone who's going to be more supportive but the reality is john it's not that easy to find another doctor in this province i mean you know it's it's not easy for a claimant to just pick up and say i'm just rejecting this doctor i'm going to find this other doctor and that's going to be the solution to all my problems and so if legitimately gabriella is looking for a different treatment provider I got to think it has more to do with her health than actually just doing this, the the doctor shopping, which is the cynical perspective that the insurance company would put in a situation like this. I think that what I also like about what she's described is that she is getting active treatment from the insurance company's rehabilitation providers, and they're also saying that she's not ready to get back to work. Let's hope that they're actually providing that advice to the insurance company. Because I can tell you that sometimes I've seen that they'll say one thing to the claimant and they'll say something totally different to the insurance company. Because as I said at the top of the show, John, they're paid for by the insurance company mostly, right? So most rehab providers that the insurance company sets you up with Mm -hmm. are being paid. Their bills are being paid by the insurance company. So, you know, they will treat the claimant. They'll provide them the support. They'll even satisfy, you know, the, the idea that, look, they're not ready for work and so on. And then they'll do a nice little progress report for the insurance company that says, "Oh yeah, they're improving, they're doing great, they just need another 4 weeks and then they're good to go." And the insurance company will rely on that to create a, a you know a return return to work plan. What I worry about in Gabriella's situation is, you know, if that were to happen. If the recommendation is made to the insurance company that she's ready for a return to work plan, you want to have a doctor in your corner that can actually advocate for you and say, hang on, wait a minute, no, 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 we don't agree or we do agree, but it should be more gradual or it should be revisited in two months or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. So if she's in the process of changing doctors, my concern would be, look, you want to make sure that you've put something in place that you've got someone that you can rely on in your own corner to rebut any you know, improper assumptions that are being made about our capacity to work right. and get back.
1: You got it. Let's take a, a short break, my friend, and we'll get back to more and more of your emails. Valerie, stand by. You are coming up in just a few minutes, so stick around for that. For uh, for you to do the same, help at disabilityrights.ca. Simple, right? Mydisabilityquestions.com. That's to ask some questions through your phone or your keyboard on your computer anytime, anonymously. And the phone call always works if you just want to jettison right over to talking to somebody like Tamar or one of her team, one 2 one 5900 Use that number anytime you would like. And we'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. It's on the way.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. And with that, welcome back
1: to the Disability Law Show. Thank you so much hanging through the break and uh, reaching out to Tamara Gopian and partner, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. It's simple. It's one right? Help at disabilityrights.ca any other time as well. Are there certain details, Tamara, or information that the insurance companies are looking for when they're uh, going through that review of medical records for an LTD claim? I mean, should you, should you be getting those ready in a certain way, do you think?
2: Good question. Um, You know, I would say that you want to make sure that as many details about your disability are contained in the documents that you're providing to the insurance company. And this goes for the forms that you fill out or the clinical notes and records that your doctor might send over, or even if, you know, in some cases that what the adjusters will do, John, is they'll actually prepare like two or three canned questions they'll put it in a form and they'll ask these specific questions of one of your treatment providers and ask them to answer. I actually saw one last week where the doctor had just written about five words for each of the two questions he was asked. And so when I had the consultation with the the particular person that I was speaking with, I said to him, look, those five words, not enough, right? Like you really want to get your doctor to understand the importance of putting in all of those details, because it's always a moving target with disability insurers, right? If you've got a diagnosis, but you don't have symptoms that they think are disabling, they'll say, well, just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean you meet the test of disability. And then they'll also do the converse. They'll say, well, you've got a bunch of symptoms, but it's not clear what your diagnosis is, so you, might not, you must not meet the test of total disability. You can avoid this kind of circular argument that you know insurance companies love to use by making sure that all of that information that you're providing to the insurance company is complete, that it's detailed, that it talks about, look, let me give four or five points, okay, John, that the main things that we would be looking for, for sure, if a doctor is preparing some kind of report is, is there a diagnosis, even if it's a working one, is there a working one? You know, what are the symptoms, the restrictions and limitations, you know, how is function actually impacted, you know, with your patient day to day? How does that relate with their occupational duties? So like, is it a physical disability? Is it a mental health disability? Is it some combination of the two? You know, we wanna hear all of those details. And then the other key thing, of course, is the doctor saying, well, my opinion is that this person cannot work. It's amazing to me how many medical forms and reports that I read that don't actually come out and say that. So you really do want your doctor saying, look, and I support that this patient not be working right now as a result of all of these health issues. I think with adjusters generally, they are box checkers. I've said this before on our shows. You know, they want to sort of put things in into neat packages. And so the diagnosis helps them to then, you know, do their little web searches and say, okay, well, you've got anxiety and with some treatment, you should be good to go in 90 days. And so having your doctor comment actually on that expectation of recovery, expectation of return to work, even what a treatment plan might look like for the next three to six months and putting that detail over to the insurance company will level set expectations. It then puts the adjuster somewhat in their back heels to say, okay, well, hang on. This doesn't fit the quote unquote normal profile. When I Google anxiety and recover from anxiety, just as an example, John,
1: Yeah.
2: A lot of disability claims are actually more complex than that. You know, you've got individuals with, say, chronic pain, and that chronic pain is exacerbated, made worse by stress. The stress then may lead to depression. The depression then may lead to more pain, right? You can sort of see how these things, from a health perspective, can be related. And having the doctor, your treatment provider, validate these issues, comment on how they can be related is incredibly powerful for the disability for the disability claim. Now, whether that's within the adjuster's realm or whether it's in my realm, if I'm even advocating on behalf of a client and I'm bringing forward that legal claim, it's the same type of information that I think is incredibly important. And so I tend to find that I give this advice a lot, that there could be gaps in the medical information because I think the tendency, frankly, with the forms is just to sort of check off the boxes. Like I said, put in the five words and sort of get that over into the insurance company to sort of read into it what they will. Well, guess what? If, if they read into it what they will, they're going to read the best possible outcome, which is, oh, yeah. you're just not that badly off, right? So we're either not going to approve your claim or we're going to decline your claim and get you back to work. In our mind, this is just simply not enough to justify releasing another month of payment and another month of payment. So takeaway here the key one is as much information you can get to the insurance company as possible
1: you got it and uh, let's move on to uh, to valerie has an email happening says tomorrow i have a grievance with my employer through the union for failing to provide me accommodation for my physical disability it's still ongoing I was off for almost two years due to my health and got LTD benefits in consultation with my doctor. The insurance company set up a graduated return to work plan with accommodations and stopped paying LTD benefits when I was supposed to get back to work. Uh, I'm not working and I'm not getting LTD benefits. Uh, Is there something I could do or should be doing? I feel like I'm being discriminated against and don't want this to happen to the next disabled person. Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah really really good question valerie thank you for reaching out and so i think i'm going to start by talking about the union's involvement i think that's where i want to focus my first initial comments uh, in valerie's situation because it certainly sounds like the union is involved in some way she's pursuing a grievance through the union for a return to work and an accommodation and and actually that's the right approach valerie like i give you a lot of credit for actually engaging the union for the right reasons and that is the right reason When you're a unionized individual and you're working to get back to work, that's really what you want to make sure you have in place and that you've got your union rep uh, there and at the ready to help be the go-between between yourself and your employer to ensure that your return to work is appropriate and done safely. This doesn't mean, though, that you're not entitled to pursue LTD benefits at the same time. You absolutely are, particularly if your collective agreement doesn't really talk about your entitlements to ltd benefits or it doesn't say anything about look if you've got a dispute with your ltd insurer and you know that dispute must be grieved uh, there are lots of unionized people that we can actually assist and so i don't want anyone to be deterred from what i'm saying that oh i'm unionized so it must mean that i can't hire tomorrow her team to pursue ltd benefits no i want to debunk that completely you know i will look at the collective bargaining agreement and i will do some further analysis on that to make sure that we can act and actually advocate on behalf of you, nice people. But you know what, John, we're coming up to a break. I wanna comment a little bit more on Valerie's specific situation with yep. the return to work. So why don't we pick it up after our next break?
1: We'll do that. And in the meantime, here's the contact to reach out to Tamar and her team. Again, one 1-5900-HELP-AT-DisabilityRights.ca. And we'll continue. More Disability Law Show is coming up.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right.
1: Welcome back, Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go. Still got some time, some stuff to get through. And outside this hour of the show, Anytime you want to reach out, your email might end up on a future show. Help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number for Tamar and her crew one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Simple. Let's get back to uh, to Valerie's email Tamar. again. Uh, union problems, two years off due to health and ongoing LTD benefits and and all that stuff. So continue where uh, where you left off, pal.
2: Absolutely. So so let's talk about a return to work. How does that actually look like when you've been on disability for a couple of years and actually trying to transition back into the mm-hmm. workplace? The insurance company, the disability insurer, will look at this and say, you know, our analysis now, uh, you know, Valerie, is that you can work at another occupation, any occupation, whatever you could do in the world that would give you some, you know, measure of the same level that we were paying you for an LTD benefit. So the disability insurer is no longer really interested, doesn't really care whether you go back to your actual previous job or not. They're just simply saying in order to qualify for further disability benefits, there needs to be evidence that you can't, medical evidence, that you can't do a, you know a job earning basically two-thirds and doing something that's within your education, training, and experience. And so it's cleverly done, right, John, because they'll essentially wash their hands of it. So there's not a lot of support the disability insurers will offer if the plan is, with you and your doctor, to get back to your actual original work setting. So unfortunately, disability insurers have this tendency to sort of leave you to your own devices to figure that part out. And there's because someone like Valerie has been on claim for so many years, you you tend to get used to the idea that the disability insurer is actually going to facilitate this for you, and many do not. So, as I said, right when you read the email, you know, I give Valerie a lot of due that she's activated her union to help her with that transition. When you're unionized, that's the right approach to take, but also don't leave the insurance company off the hook if there's still entitlement to disability benefits. And that's the part of her email that's not entirely clear to me. I'm assuming that she's gotten the green light by her own doctor to actually attempt to return to work. But if she hasn't and she's just feeling the pressure to get back to work because the insurance companies cut her off, well, I'm not sure that's the right scenario either. Because most disability policies, not only, you know, do you continue to get your LTD benefit if you've got the support that you're still totally disabled by your own doctors. But there's also a number of provisions that are kind of buried that we don't talk a lot about. Which are rehab provisions or partial work capacity provisions and so there could be a basis for the insurance company to continue paying even a top-up payment if you're not getting back to work at a level that you should be at in line with the policy again lots of math can be somewhat technical but you want to make sure you understand your rights there And if there is a basis for the insurance company to continue paying a top-up payment, then I don't want the insurance company to be let off the hook on that scenario, John. I can actually think of a couple of clients that I'm representing now who were paid the full own occupation period and were given clearance to return back to work, but only for certain hours in the day or the week with certain modifications put in place. The, the, The one client I'm thinking of in particular had a very great employer who is working with her, who has put these modifications in place is very well aware that she's not going to exceed this partial work capacity. But in the context of that, the insurance company said, you know what, we're just tired of paying the benefits, we're not going to pay oh. more, uh, and ended up after some years actually cutting off that top-up payment. Not right, not correct. And I think that it has less to do with whether you're unionized or not, and more to do with what's put in place with your successful return to work. And is it actually successful? Because this is the other part of it for Valerie, is that once she does make it back to work, if something is put in place, and if it is a partial work capacity, for example, or some kind of a graduated return, and if mm-hmm. it's not successful, then the policy allows her to actually make a recurrence claim back to the disability insurer and say, look, I tried, guys. But you know my health is preventing me from working again. My doctor has put me off work again here is my medical information you guys need to start up my ltd benefits again i tried and it was not successful as long as that medical support is there john it then doesn't let the insurance company off the hook just because you're making a good effort to try and get back to work
1: talk a little more you mentioned the recurrence clause in there talk a little more expand on that's why that's an advantage and how that works
2: yeah. So what I like about the recurrence clause is that most of them typically say if your health issues recur and it's a, it's a health issue that's either directly or indirectly related to a claim that you had before that the insurance company has paid for already. So you had a disability, you were approved, you were paid by the disability insurer, you know, good on you, you managed to get back to work, but your health prevented you once more from continuing to work usually if it's in within that six-month window of a prior claim, you can activate this recurrence clause. And it's pretty broadly worded, John. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact same disability. It can be related to, or it could right. be, you know, some something to do with your health that's preventing you from working. And you don't have to actually restart the clock with the insurance company. It's not a new claim. It, it's actually a continuation of your prior claim which means that you don't have to submit to the waiting period or the qualifying period. So let me explain that piece of it as well. When you apply for long-term disability benefits, usually there's a period where you don't actually get LTD benefits. That typically will coincide with a short-term disability plan, but you should know basically it's like 17 weeks or 26 weeks where you've got to demonstrate, yeah, that you're totally disabled, not able to work, and then the LTD benefits kick in. The beauty of the recurrence clause is that you don't have to go through that waiting period again. It's not a new claim, it's a continuation. So the idea is that if you've got the medical support, that you have to stop working again, your health is preventing you from working, you can just submit that over to the insurance company and the benefits should theoretically kick back up again. But of course, in the wisdom of disability law, I mean, it doesn't always work this way, right? Once the insurance company's got you off claim, they want to keep you off claim. They don't really yep. want you back on. So I tend to find that with the recurrence type claims, you get a lot more resistance from the insurance company. More, more than you already do to say, look, you were fine. You could work. You know, you just needed more modifications in your workplace and you were okay. We're not going to pl- approve the recurrence claim. And all roads lead back to your medical support. If The doctor's yeah. saying you can't work full stop that's the end of the the line there and the insurance company should be compensating you
1: yeah, a lot of it's about language, and if you don't understand it, which you probably won't, especially if you start reading through that policy, you'll want to reach out to Tamar and her team to get some uh, some clarification for sure so uh, mistakes are not made. And you can move on it rather quickly because the insurance company will drag you through the mud for sure. But uh, to do that, as we wrap up here for another day, you can reach out through email, which we've been using, of course, every show, help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number for Tamar and her team, one eight five five eight. Two one fifty nine hundred. And I mentioned before, a free and anonymous website to ask your questions if something comes to mind, and uh, you know it could be there. Your question might have been asked, so you can search the database as well, save you some time, right? Called mydisabilityquestions.com. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com, and we'll catch you next time on the next edition the Disability Law Show.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.